Amen. As you turn to Mark chapter 7 in your Bibles, Mark chapter 7, as the kids head to Crossing Kids to learn on their level the gospel and Jesus, we'll be in Mark chapter 7. They'll be actually learning of the same exact passage we're walking through uh, this morning, so that'll be good. Thankful to be able to teach and preach this morning and pick up this next section of Mark. Uh, Thankful to be a part of a church who have several men capable of teaching and preaching the scriptures. And uh, thankful there's going to be more of those guys down the road that God's going to send and has sent who's going to develop those those gifts. Uh, Thankful to hear multiple voices and styles help us see God's word come alive as we worship Jesus each Sunday. Uh, For me, that was one of the non-negotiables from the beginning and, and my part of the Crossing Church being started, I had zero desire to be the sole teaching pastor of a church. I'd done that for 10 years in two different churches. And I longed for a team of men who could work together to bring God's word to God's people each week. And here we are. And, uh, but I also love to teach and preach. And so uh, not doing this since late July, I've kind of been like all week just raring to go, like fired up. So I hope we're done before two or three. It's got a lot I want to... Lay out there. Walking through the rest of Mark 7 this morning, two incredible stories where Jesus reveals faith in a desperate mom, and then Jesus gives faith to a desperate man. And then I'll make the connection between those two stories and the rest of chapter 7. But first, revealing the faith of a desperate mom, beginning in in verse 24 of chapter uh, 7. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Father, we are grateful that we have your word to give us life, to instruct us, to illuminate our path so we know how to live as your people. And you have preserved it so that what we study today and read today, we have full confidence is the same thing that the original audience read and heard. We thank you for the miracle of Scripture. Father, help us to understand it this morning. May your Spirit come and bring life and bring joy and bring uh, even salvation to us today. May you call us to repent. May you call us to believe, and may you accomplish all of this by your power so that we may sing your praises, because it's all the gift of your grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus has been in his normal place of ministry around the Sea of Galilee, and then he begins to travel from uh, that region to a place that the only time in his three years of gospel ministry he left Jewish lands. This is, this is Jesus, for the only time, going on a, a short-term international mission trip, leaving Jewish lands to go to, to Gentile lands. If, if you uh, look at a map, I have a map here. For those of you who like maps, this is helpful. For those of you who don't, this is just a pretty picture. 
But Jesus is around the Sea of Galilee, that, that larger blob of blue there in the middle. And he travels up to the northwest to Tyre. Sidon is actually further north on the, on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And that is the, the land of Phoenicia. The Phoenicians were known for being sailors and known for their gifts in that. And then later on we'll see he's going to travel back down from that region to uh, the southwest to the, the southeast of the Decapolis. And we'll talk about that region later on. But, but he's outside of Jewish lands where he's typically around the Sea of Galilee for most of his ministry. Now he's not. He's in these foreign countries historically. Jesus is headed to a land that is not only Gentile but has been home to the, some of Israel's most notorious enemies. Uh, the region was home of Jezebel, the, a name that's notorious with wickedness and evil in the Old Testament when she was queen, actually, of Israel. These people um, actually helped the Greeks fight against the Jews just 200 years prior in the Maccabean Revolt. So not only are these people uh, not friendly to the Jews throughout their history, but these people have been the very epitome of pagan and false god worship through the years. As, as one commentator said, uh, this was home to one of the most extreme forms of paganism in practice and symbol. In other words, Jesus takes his ministry into the teeth of a people who were evil, wicked, and enemies of God. Why? Well, we'll look at the primary reason later on, but judging by the fact he wanted to remain hidden and unknown, he again is looking to get away from the pressures and the consuming nature of crowds and have time to rest and be with his disciples. We couldn't do that anymore in the Jewish lands. So let's head out of the country. See how that goes. And it goes as you might expect. More people found him and came to him and wanted his help. Well, how is this possible? Like way up here. How do these people even know who he is and what he can do? Well, if you remember from Mark chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, where it says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed him. From Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and from beyond the Jordan and from the, around Tyre and Sidon, there had already been Gentiles from that region who had, who had gone to Jesus and heard him teach and saw his power and saw the miracles that he could perform. So who knows, a family member, a friend may have been one of that crowd who had gone, seen and heard Jesus, had returned with stories. And so this woman hears, he's here now. She's got this sick daughter. And his heart just leaps, her heart leaps with joy Maybe he can do something. And so she goes to him and falls down at his feet and begins to beg him. It's, this story is also recorded in Matthew 15. It's, it's even more emphatic in, in that story about her begging and calling out and pleading. She, she was as desperate as the parent of a sick child can be. This child that you love, they have this affliction, they have this sickness... And you watch them suffer through some of those things and, and there's nothing you can do. You're helpless. It's a child. What have they done to deserve this? Why do they have to suffer with this? And as they lay sometimes in hospital beds like we've dealt with with our, our youngest daughter, with, with Sarah, even this past Christmas as she was in a hospital for a severe seizure and you stand by their bed and you just, you can't do anything. You can't fix it. All you can do is love and pray and be there. God, I would take her place now. Make it happen. And God graciously allows you to continue to trust him that this is going to work out for her good and his glory. But in the case of this woman, she hears word about a man who has a power unheard of healing thousands with a touch 
our word, a, a Jewish holy man. I, I must go to him. And Jesus' response to her is, is kind of shocking. Verse 27, he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Wait. Did Jesus just call her a dog? Not like, what up, dog? Like slang, you know, you're my, you're my boy, you're my girl, but like a, a subtweet or a, a backdoor passive-aggressive insult of her. Did he just insult this woman who's desperate for the healing of her daughter? This, this seems, just reading it at face value, that it's unnecessarily harsh. Or is it? Well, let's see if we can uh, immerse ourselves into that language and culture and hear, hear this as they would have in the first century. First, the language. Now, there's no way of knowing this apart from a good study Bible or commentary or just knowing the biblical languages. Just one of the barriers we have to cross as we study Scripture. But the word that he used there for dog was a soft and kind word for dog. Um, the word he used was, there, there was a Greek word that referred to a mongrel, a street dog, a wild dog. Like when I was growing up, uh, one of my favorite wrestlers was Junkyard Dog on Mid-South Wrestling, JYD. Right? And they would show him before he enters the ring. He's living in the junkyard and he comes out with a chain around his neck. It's all real. He really did live there. And he goes in the ring and takes care of business. And he comes into the ring with uh, another one bites the dust. A queen. Freddie Mercury, who was not a junkyard dog, interestingly. But JYD would, would be kind of this picture, junkyard dog, of, of one of the Greek words for dog. But that's not the word Jesus used. He used a word that referred to a, a domestic pet. A puppy. Right? And so he's, even the language, he's not using the more aggressive or harsh version of that word dog. It's... He's calling her maybe even a puppy. Not an insulting term, but even if it's not harsh, it is hard what he said. So why did he say that, and what is the point is he trying to make? It's a term that shows her, the woman, her place in comparison to the Jews. Now, she had a strong understanding of Jewish life. In, in this story... The version of the story in Matthew, she called Jesus in Matthew 15, 22, O Lord, Son of David. She called out to him for this healing. She called out, O Lord, Son of David. That's incredibly messianic. For a Gentile woman to have that understanding of Jesus and his, who he was, it's, it's remarkable that she's had some exposure to Judaism before. And so she, she understood who the Jews were. She understood her place as a Gentile. And in Jewish culture, it was common to refer to Gentiles as dogs. In fact, Jesus himself would do that in places like Matthew 7, 6. Don't give dogs what is holy. Don't throw your pearls before pigs. I say trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. So we have to be discerning in who we share the gospel with. We don't share the gospel with people who just keep throwing it back in our face. There is a point in time, it's very rare, but it does happen, where you no longer share the gospel with certain people. The Messiah was first for the Jews. God had established a covenantal relationship with the Jews in the Old Testament. We know this from, from throughout the Old Testament, first with Abraham and, the, and his offspring. They were his people, and the pattern of Jesus' ministry, the pattern of the early church, was always to the Jews first, then to the Gentiles. Jesus comes in his ministry, he's ministering first to the Jews, and then his ministry spread beyond the Jews to the Gentiles. In the early church... Acts chapter 1, they're gathered in the upper room. Before that, Jesus had said, you will be my witnesses in Acts 1.8 in Jerusalem, Judea, Jewish lands, to Samaria, a mixture of Jews and other cultures, and then to the ends of the earth, Gentile lands. 
They're gathering up room. The Holy Spirit falls. They stay in Jerusalem preaching the gospel. The church is exploding in growth. And, and they're just staying right there, ministering to thousands of people. And it's, it's only when God sends persecution to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 8 that they finally begin to spread out beyond Jerusalem. And then, the, and then God has to reveal to Peter in Acts chapter 10 that this is part of his plan. That yes, salvation has come for the Gentiles. They are not unclean. Spread the gospel to the Gentiles. And then Cornelius, the Roman centurion, is saved. And his household is saved. And the gospel spreads all the way to the city of Rome by the end of Acts. We as Gentiles are grateful for this. Because we have heard and believed the gospel. And we have come alive in Christ. And the gospel has spread to us. And is now spreading to the far ends of the earth. And continuing to save people. Paul would say in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first. And also to the Greek. This is what he's referring to. When Jesus says this to the woman. It's not. He's not writing to. To to uh, feed the children instead of the dogs. It's not either or. It's feed the children first and then the dogs receive from the same table, the same meal. We get the same gospel that the Jews have received. The same Savior. This makes sense. Like this language, she understood this. You know, you don't have a, 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 in a household, your dog doesn't sit at the table with you and eat. I'd be weird when somebody's house and their dog is sitting up in a chair eating from a plate right next to you. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take my food and go in here, all right? I'll just do that weird thing right there. The dog is under the table. The dog is someone in another room waiting for you to finish the meal, and maybe then you throw him some table scraps. For this Gentile woman, for the Gentiles, they are not God's covenantal people in the same way as the Jews. They were grafted in, and Jesus is making that distinction. The Father feeds his kids first. And Jesus' entire ministry began with the Jews and then spreads to the Gentiles. And so Jesus places a seeming obstacle in the path to this woman's daughter's healing. And so how would she respond to this? How does she take this? She demonstrates beautiful faith. Verse 28. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in the bed and the demon gone. At some point in her past, she was exposed to teaching a revelation about the Jewish Messiah. And she believed this Messiah, this man Jesus, had that kind of power and demonstrated her belief in the way she, she placed her faith in him and his power. You see, Jesus reveals her faith. He knew she had the faith. He knew it was in her. But he only revealed it to his disciples. He only revealed this faith to the world eventually by initially saying no. Like if he didn't say no, we wouldn't know how amazing this faith was. He says no to draw this out of her. Maybe she didn't even know she had this kind of faith. Don't forget that when you're asking God to work in your life and the life of others, His no's have a purpose as much as the yeses. Sometimes it might be to reveal faith in you that you don't even know that you have. He says no. What you're asking Him to do, will you still believe? Are only you, are, 
are, are you only after him for him to give you what you want, when you want, how you want it? Is that it? Or will you continue to believe? Will you persist? Jesus gives her an obstacle for her faith to overcome, and she does not push back in anger or pride or arrogance, but in humility, it's beautiful, she enters into the parable and basically says, you're right. You're right. We're Gentiles. We don't deserve a seat at the table with the children. But the food provided by the Father is so abundant There is more than enough to feed the kids and then let the scraps and crumbs fall from his table to us. And Jesus says, for this statement, your daughter has been healed. Incredible statement of faith, so full of humility and need, but also so full of bold faith. You see, if she would have responded in arrogance and pride, demanding that Jesus heal her daughter, demanding that she deserve Jesus to heal her daughter, demanding that he act as she desired, not demonstrating humility, then then Jesus' power would not have flowed. She was humble. She was repentant. This is a prerequisite for God to work in our life. The, The first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. We don't come to the table bragging to God, look at all I bring to the table, God. Of course you're going to work in my life. God's not working in that life. It's when we come to the table saying, I got nothing to offer you. I don't even know why you would save me. Why you would work in me. I come empty. And God's, okay, that's a life I can work in. Not the life that demands and recites her credentials and demands God to act, but the life that falls on their face and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is the posture of this woman. This is the paradox of the Christian life. If you think you can see, Jesus says, you're blind. If you admit you're blind, Jesus says, now you can see. If you think you're alive, you're dead. But if you admit you're dead and need a savior, you can come alive. If you're humble, you will be exalted. But if you are exalting yourself, you will be humbled. The Christian life begins with humility and desperation, admitting there is a need. Something is missing. I'm lost. But then, once you come alive, once you feast on Jesus, there's joy, there's peace, there's confidence, there's boldness. Not rooted in yourself because you already know you have nothing, but rooted in Him who now lives in you. We live as Christians holding these two things in tension, humility and confidence. You have to have both. And you see both in this woman's confession of faith. No, I don't deserve to be at the table with the kids. But there's a guy up there. There's a man up there. There's a father up there who is so abundantly feeding his children. There's more than enough to feed me and take care of my daughter. Just with the crumbs. She knew her place. But she also knew his power. She knew his mercy and compassion for a dog like her. Guys, it's the same with us. We know our place. All we deserve is hell. It's all we've earned. Hell. There's nobody on the face of the earth who deserves more than hell. But we know his power for us and in us. And so we live in confidence because 
The same power that called all things into existence from nothing now lives inside of you and me in the presence of Jesus Christ. Like, that should blow our mind continually. When we forget one side of the equation is often when we get off in our walk with Jesus. So when we forget our place, we aren't humble. We begin to believe that we deserve certain things when all we deserve is hell. Then when we ask and we expect certain things from our Father and, and, and He, like this woman, doesn't immediately say yes and we get puffed up in pride and arrogance and feel like we've got to remind Him of who we are. Don't you know who I am? Don't you know what I've done, God? Don't you know what I do? Don't you know all I've done for you? Don't you know the sacrifices I've made? I'm here this morning. I'm not sleeping in. Come on, God. Look at, look at my credentials, God. When we do that, we've forgotten not only who we are, we've forgotten who He is. Because all we can accomplish in the name of Christ, all the abilities and skills and talents, whether they're used spiritually or whether they're used just to work a job, are gifts of His grace. All of them. All we can do for Him is only because He empowers it. And He gives us the ability. So that everything we accomplish of any significance never gives us praise and glory. It always goes to Him. Because He's doing it through us. So when we puff ourselves up and we demand things from God, we forget who we are, we forget who He is. But the other mistake is equally as harmful. We lose sight of His power. And so while we think we're humble, because we're walking around with our heads down, shuffling our feet, with our hands in our pocket, we're so worthless, we're no good, all we deserve is hell. When that's all we do, we don't accomplish much for the kingdom except maybe have people applaud our self-degradation and humility. It's not really humility, it's actually pride, just reversed from arrogant pride. It's making much of yourself and your, and your supposed humility. We know our place, we know His power, we can be a used to accomplish amazing works of God. That will last forever through very flawed, broken vessels. We can have conversations this week with people where we share the love of Christ, we share the gospel of Christ, they come alive in Christ, and they will exist forever in the presence of God because we, as it is a very broken instrument, share the gospel with them. That's a whole lot more significant than checking off the box at your job or writing a paper for school or mowing your yard. All that stuff can be done to the glory of God as well, right? Don't want to degrade any of that. It needs to be done for the glory of God. But the presence of the Spirit of God in us, we, broken vessels, can accomplish things of eternal significance. And so we leave this place in confidence, not in ourselves, but in Christ, in boldness, because we believe there are people all over this city, people in our homes, people in our jobs and our schools that he's sending us to, that he has sent us to. And this may be the week that the conversation is had, that they come alive in Christ. It can happen. Like we have to believe every day that can happen because we're sent to those people as missionaries of Christ. We know our place. We know his power. We live with humble confidence in him. We see the, God, the power of God flow in our lives and through our lives to others in the same way this woman experienced for her daughter. So that brings us to the second story of Jesus doing great things, beginning in verse 31. 
Then he returned to the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee into the region of the Decapolis. And they had brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. Jesus travels from Tyre. He heads north to Sidon, then back down to the Decapolis, this uh, region that literally means ten cities in Greek, also a Gentile region. And the reception Jesus received is, is quite different from the last time he was in this region. If you remember Mark chapter 5, Jesus had gone to this region across the Sea of Galilee. He was immediately confronted by this crazy, naked, demon-possessed man who basically lived as a wild animal among the tombs. And if you remember that story, Scott walked us through that in June. He, he casts the legion of demons out of this man into a herd of pigs. The pigs run off a cliff into the sea, kill themselves. And the people of that region go to Jesus and say, you've got to get out of here. That is crazy. We don't know what to do with you. You've got power we've never seen. The man also wanted to, to go with Jesus as Jesus left back across the Sea of Galilee. But if you remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 5, verse 19 and 20, He did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Well, he has done his work. Because when Jesus comes back, there's crowds of people coming to Jesus. In fact, in the parallel account in Matthew, it says crowds, a great crowd came to him. Did the demon-possessed man go to seminary? Did he receive any theological training? He didn't even have a copy of the Bible. But he has this story of Jesus and his power. And people more and more saw and believed in Jesus. Now, I'm not dismissing seminary. I've been there myself and have a degree. It's the importance of theological training. But for our church who can tend to skew to the the side of being theological eggheads, we want to sit around and discuss and debate and read and study. Instead of going out with the gospel and the power of God to see him change lives, we need to remember this. This man accomplished much for the glory of Christ without the things that sometimes we make too much of. These people were seeing it and experiencing it, and so they bring this guy to Jesus who was deaf and mute. And Jesus heals him in a rather peculiar way. Look at verse 33 and 30 through 37. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Epatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, some of you germaphobes are freaking out. Did Jesus really spit into this man's mouth to heal him? What in the world is going on here? He had just healed this woman... This woman's daughter with a word, he didn't have to spit. He didn't have to do all these odd things. Why didn't you just heal him with a word? What's what's happening? Why is he going through this seemingly unnecessary production? Well, the first thing is this. Jesus never used one method to heal. No doubt if Jesus would have touched people and said the same thing every time he healed, we would 2,000 years later be doing the same thing, thinking that it's the method that has the power, not the man intentionally never used the same method so that we wouldn't make much of the method and lose sight of the fact he was the power. But even more important, Jesus was demonstrating incredible compassion and sensitivity to this man. Let's go over here in private, away from the crowds. Now, just imagine for a second being deaf and mute. 
You can see everything that you can see, but you can't hear anything or speak back into anything. Now, judging by the fact the man spoke as soon as he was healed, more than likely, not definitely, but more than likely, he could speak earlier in life. He had a concept of language. If you're born deaf and mute, you don't have that. So some injury, some sickness, he lost the ability to hear and speak. And so he knew. He knew what it was like for people to have this interaction that he couldn't have. And so this man lived this life seeing everyone but not able to communicate apart from sign language. And now he's taken by his friends to this new miracle worker. Maybe their motivations were pure. Maybe they just wanted to see a show. Who knows? Whatever the case, Jesus was not healing him in a way that would make a show or a production of it. He pulls him away in private. Away from the gawking eyes. And then he basically tells the man in sign language, in his language, what I'm about to do. He puts his fingers in his ears. I'm about to take care of that. He puts spit on his tongue. I'm about to take care of that. How are you going to do that? He looked up into heaven. God's going to heal you. And then he spoke these words, be opened. And immediately, it's gone. The mute, the cave, the silence that he lived in is gone. He hears and he can speak and he can give praise to God. And so this man, unlike the woman whose faith Jesus revealed to her and others, this man seemingly had no faith. Brought by friends, he asked for nothing and Jesus gave him faith. Interesting. The word in the original language of the New Testament for the fact that this man was mute is a word that's only used one other time in the Bible. Isaiah 35, verses 5 through 6. We read this earlier in the service. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. In this verse, uh, this chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah is making the transition from judgment on the nations, which he just talked about in Isaiah 34, to the expectant promised hope of the coming Messiah. And when he comes, that's what he's going to do. Mark, inspired by the Spirit of God, capitalizes on that. This is one of only three stories that Mark tells that are not in Matthew and Luke. Mark makes a strong declaration about the identity of Jesus by, by making this connection to Isaiah 35. Mark doesn't refer back to the Old Testament much because his audience is Gentiles, but when he does, he lays a strong connection. Isaiah is talking about the Messiah in that chapter. Now he's doing it. Jesus, demonstrating again his incarnational ministry, enters the man's world in compassion and love, and not only heals him, but he does it in a way that is incredibly kind, sensitive, and loving. Jesus is not putting on a show out there. He's not throwing around his power like a lightsaber and just a little healing there and a little healing there. He could have walked into regions where there were sick people coming to him, and he could have just snapped his finger, and everybody's healed. He could have done it any way he wanted. He created everything from nothing. But he goes to this man in love, embracing him, touching him, showing him compassion, and heals him in a way that is the most loving way he could have healed him. Because that is who he is. That is God. A God who not only has power, but a God who has love. 
entering the lives of hurting and broken people and loving them in a way that only the God who created them and knew them could love them and heal them. And this really gets to what connects these two seemingly unrelated stories to each other and then the larger context of chapter 7. The verse 23 verses of chapter 7 reveal this intense confrontation between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees. This wasn't the first time they butted heads and it won't be the last. And as we saw when Kendrick and Joseph walked us through those passages over the last few weeks, they, they had their rules. They had the tradition of the elders. They had their understanding of God's law. And Jesus was not following their religious rules. And it was infuriating them. You want to be accepted by God, you had to follow their rules. You had to clean the outside of your body in certain ways through their washing rituals before you go into the temple, before you eat meals. You had to not defile yourself by maintaining a certain diet. And so Jesus, why aren't you washing your hands this way? Why aren't you refusing to eat certain foods? Why are you seeming to flaunt our traditions and the traditions of the elders? And Jesus essentially tells them through those passages, you think the problem is an exterior problem of defilement, and so you guys give an exterior solution, washing and not eating. But I'm here to tell you the problem is an interior problem, a heart problem that needs an interior solution. They wanted to put band-aids on cancer patients. Jesus says, no, I've got to come in there and fix those people from the inside out and take out the cancer of sin. What defiles us is what's inside of us, our wicked hearts. And that can't be fixed by washing our hands or eating certain foods. It can only be fixed by someone giving us a new heart. And so here is a clear contrast between the gospel and religion. Religion is only about exterior behavioral modification, which turns into self-righteousness. Look at what I do. Therefore, see how good I am. Tim Keller in his book, The Center Church, he, he goes to an extensive comparison between the religion and the gospel. And I'm going to post this in the city um, later this week. But religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Religion says, motivation is based on fear and insecurity. The gospel says, motivation is based on grateful joy. Religion says, I obey God in order to get things from God. The gospel says, I obey to get God, to delight and look like Him. Religion says, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I'm angry at God or myself, since, since I believe, like Job's friend, that anyone who is good deserves good and comfort. The gospel says, when circumstances in my life go wrong, it is a struggle but I know that while God may allow this for my good, he will show his fatherly love to me while I walk through it. Religion says when I'm criticized, I'm furious. Because it's essential for me to think of myself as a good person. So anyone who criticizes me is a threat. Because my image may not be accurate. The gospel says when I'm criticized, it is a struggle. But it's not essential for me to think of myself as a good person. My identity is not built on my performance, but on the performance of Christ. He is who makes me good. Religion says my prayer life consists largely of petition, and it only heats up when I'm desperate. The main purpose of prayer is to control circumstances. The gospel says my prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration. My main purpose is fellowship. Religion says 
my self-view swings between two poles. When I do good, I'm confident. Look how amazing I am. And when I fail, I'm a failure. Look at how sorry I am. The gospel says my self-view is not based upon my accomplishments as an achiever. In Christ, I'm at once sinful and lost yet accepted. I am so bad that he had to die for me. And I am so loved that he was glad to die for me. And so I have a deeper humility and a deeper confidence that's not swaggering, but is settled in Christ. Religion says my identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work or how moral I am. And I'll look down on people who aren't as hardworking as me, who are lazy, or aren't as moral as me because they're immoral. The gospel says my identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died for his enemies, including me. Only by his grace I am what I am. And I can't look down on anyone because of that. Lastly, the religion says, since I look to my pedigree or performance for my spiritual acceptability, my heart manufactures idols, talents, moral record, personal discipline, social status. I have to maintain them. So those things are my main hope of meaning, happiness, security, significance. Whatever I say, I believe about God. And the gospel says, I have many good things in my life, family, work, etc. But none of those good things are the ultimate thing. I don't have to have any of those things for me to have joy. And so there is a limit to how much anxiety and bitterness and despair they can inflict on me when I lose them or they are threatened. Because I have Jesus. I have all I need. See, the main problem of religion, as we see in Mark 7, is it elevates man's rules and traditions, and it actually cuts people off from access to God. It takes man-created rules and traditions and says, do this to get God, and people do them and think they have God, but what they have is a false sense of God. They become their own God because they began to look at themselves and what they do as their God. They're becoming their own saviors through their adherence to the rules and traditions. And people miss out on the opportunity to be reconciled to God and enjoy a relationship with the God who created them. Jesus illustrates this problem through these two stories by leaving the conflict with the Pharisees and going to pursue People that the religious leaders would have never pursued. They would have never gone to a Gentile land to pursue this Syrophoenician woman. They would have never gone to the Decapolis to pursue this man who was deaf and mute. In fact, those people, if they would have come to the temple, couldn't get in. You have no access to God. You are defiled. You are dirty. You are despicable. You are cut off from God because you can't adhere to our Rules. And the beauty of Jesus in the gospel is he makes a way through himself for broken people to have access to the God who created them. And he's illustrating this, demonstrating this. My gospel is for all people, especially the most desperate and the most cut off from religion. Now, some people will take this idea too far and say, well, well then rules and commands don't matter. You're saying it's all about relationship, not rules. Well, then rules don't matter. I can kind of do whatever I want to do. And God is loving. And all he cares about is loving and making me happy. Doctrine matters. Commands matter. If I say, I love my wife. Hey, Jennifer, I love you. How about we go on YouTube and watch NBA basketball games from the 80s and 90s? 
She's not going to receive that as loving because she doesn't care anything about that. I'm loving myself in that instance. There are guidelines. There are, there are ways in which Jennifer loves this. She doesn't love that. That I know I have to do this to show her love. If I do this, it's not loving. Even more so with God. There is a way to love God these ways. There is a way not to love God these ways. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. So don't run that route that rules don't matter, commands don't matter because the relationship with God, all he cares about is love. It's not true. Jesus himself perfectly kept all the commands of God because he loved his Father. What he did not keep were the silly man created rules and traditions that were not loving of God but were a burden to people and kept them from knowing God. So why does this matter? Because we even as a very new church, can quickly fall into the trap of religion and lose sight of our mission. Like when I was reading that list of religion and gospel, I felt far too much conviction on the religious side than I wanted to feel. God, help me, right? We can lose sight of our mission. People being transformed by the gospel of Jesus, changed into new creations, who then can go out and show the love of Christ and share the gospel of Christ with broken people all around us. Like we can cross all the T's and dot all the I's of what a church plant is supposed to be, what a healthy church is supposed to be, or a gospel-centered church. We can have gifted leaders, gifted teachers, gifted singers. We can have organization, attractive buildings, money, good conversation, relevance, and all the things that a successful church is supposed to have. But if we don't have the fruit of changed lives, the fruit of people being transformed from rebels into worshipers, the fruit of people more and more falling in love with a God who loves them far more than they ever dared hope, dream, or believe, the fruit of people being changed by the gospel, then all we've done is create another religion all we've done. This religion is called the Crossing Church. Jump through our hoops. They're a little newer, a little different, more edgy, more missional, better coffee, but they're just more religious hoops that aren't translating into changed lives. God has been, God has been so good to us, so gracious to us to see the changed lives that we have seen that many of you in this room have experienced yourself personally. We have to be diligent and we have to stay humble and we have to stay focused on Jesus and his gospel because our natural bent is religion. That's where we're going to go if we're not fighting against it every single day as the people of God. Everyone who studies church health and growth will tell you that the longer a church is around, the less evangelistic they become. Why? Because they fall into the rut of religion. And they forget that we're here to see people changed by the gospel. Like the Syrophoenician woman. Like the man who was deaf and mute. Like many of you who are here today. So maybe, like some of you who might be here today, maybe today is the day of your salvation. Like you're sitting here and you hear this amazing, beautiful, and you see this amazing, beautiful picture of Jesus. This man who is God in the flesh, this man who has power, this man who perfectly fulfilled God's commands, but then was crucified like a criminal, not for his sins, but for our sins. And then rose from the dead, proving that he had the power of God, that he was God, that everything he did was true. 
Everything he said was true. And your access to God is based upon the performance of Jesus. Trusting Jesus is the only way we get to God. And so today you see that you're a sinner. You see that Jesus alone is the Savior of the world. And today you're turning from sin and repentance and trusting in Jesus and coming alive in Christ. It can be happening right now. There's no hoop you have to jump through. You don't have to walk down an aisle to make that happen or say certain words. Just believe, repent, and believe in the gospel. And you could come alive in Christ. And then tell somebody before you leave. Like, we're going to celebrate like crazy. We're going to be crazy excited with you. We're going to come into your life and do everything we can to help you know and follow and love Jesus. For those of you who have done that, we're going to invite you to worship Jesus because you've received the salvation by remembering his body was broken for us, his blood that was shed for us through communion. So in a few moments, we'll read a prayer that give you time to repent of your sins and do business with God. And then we're going to invite you to come if you're a baptized believer and take a piece of the bread and dip it in the, in the, in the, in the juice that signifies his blood and then return to your seats. And then we as a body of believers are going to share in this ancient meal celebrating Jesus. And then we're going to sing. We're going to sing like crazy. And if you want to raise your hands, raise your hands. If you want to move other things, move other things. But make much of Jesus as we celebrate him for who he is and what he has done. Let's pray. Father, we are overwhelmed at this man, Jesus. Look at, look at him. Look at what he has done. Look at what he is doing. Look at what he has done in this room and in the lives of the people that are all around this room. The stories that, just the stories I know and the stories that are still out there to be learned. We are overwhelmed with gratitude for your grace and love. And so if there are those here today who need to be saved, save them. Holy Spirit, come and reveal the gospel and bring life and bring joy and bring hope that can be only found in Jesus. For all of us, help us to repent of where we have become religious and have moved away from the gospel. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.